So Mike met Bob by chance playing nine holes of golf on a Friday afternoon. They had a good time and traded numbers and Bob would call Mike all the time, ask him questions about golf equipment. Fast forward two years later, Bob divested from GoDaddy, had an idea that he wanted to do something in golf. And so he called Mike and Mike tried to talk him out of it. At that time, it was in 2013. The golf industry had been pretty flat to down yeah, for at least a yeah. decade. Bob told him, just think about it. At first, I wasn't very interested. The thing was good to me. I decided that I would go talk to Bob. When I left that meeting, I knew what I was going to do. It just felt like if I said no, that I would regret it for the rest of my life. It'd be so hard to continue to just move on, knowing that in the back of your mind, you passed up on a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's a huge decision and a lot of people maybe thought I was crazy, but I just felt like I had to give it a go. Bob had a real passion for wanting to challenge the status quo. We talked about how product was developed currently. We thought that if we could do things a little bit differently, that we could figure out how to make a place in the market. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the entrepreneurs, innovators, disruptors, and influencers who are shaping the future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that is golf club design, product design. I just love to hear about the backstory, the why, and today we have a company that really has explored the why, and the why being why is there not better golf clubs on the market? And that was Bob Parsons with PXG Parsons Extreme Golf. And I have the good fortune of having Brad Schwagert joining me today. And Brad is the chief product officer at PXG. And we're going to dig into what makes their clubs what they are, the innovations, what they've tried, and just hear that story. So hey, to start off, Brad, welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Appreciate you having us on and uh, giving an opportunity to tell our story a bit. Um, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, I only know from what I've researched online, but I'm sure that the story is going to be uh, much deeper and, and much more interesting and compelling since you've been up kind of at ground zero for quite a, quite a bit of time here with PXG. So we're going to start yes. off here, Brad, because uh, you and I have not had a conversation before. First time meeting each other. So I want to get to know you a little bit here. And I always like this icebreaker question to find out with our guests that connectivity to golf. So I'd like you to share with us the first time in your life you ever picked up a golf club and who was that person that invited you to have that opportunity to take that first swing? As a young man growing up, I played all kinds of different sports. My mom got married when I was later to my stepdad, and he was a really good player. He was a scratch golfer. I actually worked as a, as a golf pro, and he was always trying to get me to kind of go out and try it. And I played football, baseball, like everything, and was just hesitant to get into golf at the time because when I grew up, it was not as mainstream as it is now. And then I finally decided to go to the range one day and hit some balls and immediately just fell in love with it. I was athletic enough that I could have some pretty decent results right out of the gate. And it was just so much fun. And from there, the quest was on. I, I just started playing a lot and eventually worked my way into competitive golf and played junior golf and high school golf and played a little bit of college golf. All started with that first experience, having so much fun whacking the ball. <laughs> nice. Nice. So I understand you went to college for mechanical engineering. So even at that time when you're going through school, was it already in your mind that everything you were learning about product and engineering that you wanted to apply that to golf equipment or how did that come about? What was your first experience? I believe you, you worked for Ping for quite a few years. So tell us about from going from college, engineering, and then getting into golf equipment design. Yeah, so I, I probably have one of the more rare stories of knowing what I wanted to do when I was grow up at a pretty young age. I was in um, high school and was pretty good at math and science. So my grandfather told me, he goes, 
you know, you're good at math and science. You should be an engineer. I didn't even know what an engineer was really at the time. And I'm like, well, what is that? He's like, well, look around everything that is made pretty much has an engineer behind it that designed it and helped bring it to market. Even golf clubs. And he goes, I'm sure there's golf club engineers out there. And I'm like, that's what I want to (laughs) do. So I actually started even contacting golf companies when I was still in high school. Uh, No way. And and, yeah, (laughs) my other love was like, like a kid that grew up in the 80s, I fell in love with Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And and the idea of being a fighter pilot was was pretty far up there too. And so um, I got the opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy and I put the golf stuff on hold, although I did play a little bit when I was there on the team, but I put the dream of being a golf club engineer on hold and traded in for being a fighter pilot. But as luck would have it during my second year there, my eyesight degraded to the point where I was no longer pilot qualified. So I wasn't going to be able to fly. And so I left the academy transferred to the University of Colorado at Boulder to continue my education. My undergrad, I got mechanical engineering and then immediately started contacting golf companies again and went back to that plan. A, I guess you would say, made contact with a couple of companies, Ping being one of them, and worked out that they offered me a position when it was time for me to graduate. So came back to Arizona and been in the Valley ever since. Wow. There you go. So back home, back in the neighborhood. So you're working at Ping. I understand that uh, the Bob Parsons started tinkering around like around 2012, 2013, formed PXG in 2014, I understand. So had uh, Mike Nicoletti, was he already working at PXG and then he contacted no. you? So tell us about that no. and how, um, how, you, how so, you ended up getting on board with the PXG team. So Mike Nicolette was a former PGA Tour player, winner, actually won yeah, Bay Hill yeah. in 1983. Final round was paired with Seve Ballesteros and Greg Norman. And he went into a playoff with Greg Norman and came out with the trophy. So pretty boy. pretty cool uh, story there. But Mike, as he would tell the story, his game went south, so he moved west. And he came and got a job with Ping at the end of his playing days and was, was planning to become a sales rep and then got to know Karsten and they were using him for some R&D testing. And eventually he really liked the club design R&D process. He wasn't an engineer by education, but he's a really smart individual. And he over time built the skills to become a club designer. And so by the time I started at Ping, he was there for, I think, at least 10 years and had really developed a lot of skills and, and was already like a full-fledged designer. I came in as a kid out of college and the timing was such that I was able to make a pretty big impact early in my career. I worked my way up and by the time Bob met Mike, which is say fast forward about 12 or 13 years later from when I first started, I'd actually worked my way up to where I was the director of engineering for paying and Mike actually reported to me along with the, everybody else. who worked oh, in Okay. The All right. So Mike, I was actually his boss at Ping and he met Bob by chance playing uh, nine holes of golf on a Friday afternoon. This was about probably two years before we ultimately went to work for him, but they kind of hit it off, had a good time and traded numbers. And Bob would call Mike all the time, ask him questions about golf equipment. Fast forward two years later, you know, Bob divested from GoDaddy and had an idea that he wanted to do something in golf. And so he called Mike and he said, Hey, why don't you come over and talk to me? I have something I want to talk to you about. Mike went over, had the first meeting with him. Basically Mike tried to talk him out of it. He told him at that time it was in 2013, the golf industry had been pretty flat to down yeah, for at least a yeah. decade. It was a tough place to feel like you could invest money in and be successful. Nike hadn't left the hard goods industry yet at that time, but they were struggling, you know, and they had Tiger Woods and a lot of the best players in the world promoting their products and they were struggling. So it wasn't something that would be easy to accomplish. Mike tried to talk about it. Bob told him, just think about it. Mike talked to me about it at one point. I, honestly, at first, I wasn't very interested. I'd been there for a long time. Ping was good to me. 
I felt like I had a good career there and was planning to stay there until I retired. About a month later, something came up and I decided that I would go talk to Bob. In fact, I think it had developed over about a month or so. I told Mike, hey, you should go do it. It, it took about a month and then finally I said, you know what, I'll go talk to him. And the real story is it, it was such a kind of a long shot that we went to lunch one day and I told Mike, I said, let's call him. If he answers the phone, I'll go talk to him. If he doesn't, then I'll just forget about it. All right. And so he actually answered the phone on the first ring. He goes, hello, Mike. And Mike goes, hey, I'm here with Brad. He wants to come see you. And he's like, oh, that's great. We went over together. Mike had already talked to Bob a few times by that point. He hadn't given an offer or anything. So I went in and I was with him one-on-one -on -one and he told me his life story, which is super interesting. And then we went into like what we would try to accomplish and what we wanted to do. And when I left that meeting, I knew what I was going to do. It just felt like if I said no, that I would just regret it for the rest of my life. It'd be so hard to continue to, to just move on, knowing that in the back of your mind, you passed up on a once in a lifetime chance and the once in a lifetime opportunity. So it's a huge decision and a lot of people maybe thought I was crazy or whatever because of the position I had and where I was at in my career. But I just felt like it was something that I had to give it a go. And so, <laughs> if you will. So Bob had a real passion for wanting to, to challenge the status quo. We talked about how product was developed currently. We thought that if we could do things a little bit differently, that we could figure out how to make a place in the marketplace. Nice, nice. Now, I don't know if this is part of the myth and the legend of Bob, but I did read that when you were offered or came on board as chief product officer to develop the first set of forged irons that you were giving no time or budget constraints. You're basically just given blue sky, just make it happen. Tell me about that. It seems to me as a, as a, yeah, as, as me as a designer and architect, having no constraints, sometimes you think that would be really liberating, but in some ways that seems that could be a bit stifling too. So how did you then run with that of we could do whatever the heck we want? It's an experiment. There's no fear of failure. It sounds like that culture was embraced and ingrained from day one with PXG. So tell us about that when you, when you had like basically yeah. you can do whatever you want as, as long as it took to make it happen. Yeah. So we started in like August of 2013 and First off, we, we had an occupy for a little while. So we did some other stuff that, like cursory research around the golf industry and mm -hmm. manufacturing. And we, we even dabbled in golf balls. But when we were able to start working on clubs, I had talked to him about how product was developed at pretty much everywhere else. And that, and that was, you're very boxed in like the marketplace that was set price categories in the marketplace. You had to make set margins. It had to be launched by a certain schedule. So you're kind of backing in from the very onset multiple years out to develop products with very tight constraints on cost and time frame and all these things. And so he goes, we're not going to do it like that. The thing that Bob wanted to make clear to us is like, look, however long it takes, it takes, we're not going to bring it to market till we feel like we truly have something special. He goes, I don't want you to do anything stupid that just adds cost for no performance benefit. But if we can make it perform better and if it's doing good, then I don't want you to be trying to worry about how much it costs either. Just try to develop the best possible products we can. And that's that was kind of our initial marching order, our initial uh, mission. He did, however, when we started to talk about irons and Bob was a big part of, I would say, like the direction of where we wanted to go based off his personal preferences. So he had always kind of liked blades. He wasn't a great player, so he didn't have a ton of success, but he really liked the way they feel, they looked. He just had an affinity for blade style clubs. And he's like, wouldn't it be great if we could make something that looks like a blade, but it's more forgiving than a cavity back. Yeah. But it needs to feel better than anything else on the marketplace, go longer than anything else on the marketplace. And then at the end of the day, it's got to look super cool, distinctive, and sexy. 
that was what he envisioned of like what we needed to try to do. And so when we left that, it was great because like you said, it, it focused our efforts on like what we were trying to achieve. If he just said, make whatever, then you can kind of be all over the map and it's hard to yeah. direct it. But when, when he was like, this is what we want, it's like, okay, I know how we can do that. You know, we can make a hollow body product. The feel and sound is probably going to be an issue, but we'll figure out a way to approach that. And we did. And by making it hollow and using a very thin face, you can get all the mass to the perimeter. We use tungsten weighting around the perimeter to make it more forgiving. But ultimately what we ended up doing is it's really shifting the landscape and iron design for the entire industry. If you go back and you look at our history, we launched our Gen 1 product in late 2015. 2016 was our first like full year selling clubs. Before that time frame, if you go and look, most of the irons that were sold were either like solid body forged blades or cavity back forgiving type irons. We were the first one to kind of create this category of hollow body players, game improvement irons. And yes. now when you look at the marketplace, everybody's high technology product is some kind of hollow body technology player style performance product. I feel really, really proud that like we started that trend. You know, I don't want to overstate anything, but Carson Solheim, give him a lot of credit. He was the first one to bring like cavity back designs into irons. And from late sixties or seventies, when he first did that until we really changed the direction, that was primarily the type of products that were sold from a game improvement, higher performance type product. It's different variations, very different from his original designs, but it was that cavity back concept. And since we introduced our Gen 1 irons, that's kind of the direction that the rest of industry has gone on irons since that point. Gotcha. Gotcha. So Bob finally gave you some constraints, some parameters, some guardrails there to actually start (laughs) designing against. It's my understanding that your, your first big breakthrough came when you identified the material to fill the hollow bodied club head and what you did with that with injection molding. So so tell us about that, that aha moment, like working through, I'm always interested as far as that yeah. design process and rapid prototyping, what you tried and even tell us about what didn't work in just that whole, that iterative design process until you arrived at where you are with what worked with the material and the technique for the injection molding. Yeah, so our first irons that we got were completely hollow. They weren't filled. You hit them, they performed pretty well, but they sounded terrible. And right. so kind of expected that a little bit. We suspected that hollow feel that wasn't acceptable. So we, we right away tried filling it with all kinds of different stuff. We tried foams and gels and rat glue type stuff. We tried all kinds of different things and nothing was really taking that vibration away. I had some experience in the past with using thermoplastic elastomers, which are kind of a dampening material. And we thought, hey, maybe if we can inject a mold and completely fill the cavity up so the metal is supported by that, then we could get rid of that vibration and make it feel better. And so we had our first prototypes come back that were filled with that. And we hit them the first time and it was like doing cartwheels. It just felt so different than anything else. And it was just a, a kind of a eureka aha moment. Yeah, we yeah. still did a lot of stuff to fine tune it because really what ended up happening, we started looking at like how to optimize the exoskeleton and make the face as thin as possible. We ended up going with a much, much thinner face than that first generation product was. But the real breakthrough in addressing the feel in the Gen 1 was the thermoplastic elastomer that we used that really changed how the club sounded and felt at impact. Ever since then, we've, we've learned so much about the polymers that we use inside the clubs. We spend a quite a bit of time as part of our R&D continuing to optimize those and the relationship that they have with the rest of the club to try to get the performance that we want. 
we've learned from that first time where we were just trying to focus on feel and sound to where we are now, where it's a huge part of the performance. I didn't even anticipate a lot of that back then. And so we're 10 years in now. And during those 10 years, we just learned more about this construction and how all the parts work together and, and have been able to continue to make better and better products each generation because of that. Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. We are now going to take a short break to learn about our episode presenting partner, Golf Genius Software. Golf Genius powers tournament management at over 10,000 private clubs, public courses, resorts, golf associations, and tours in over 60 countries. So if you're a golf professional or course operator who wants to save time, deliver exceptional golf experiences, and generate more revenue, check them out online at www.golfgenius.com. So with the polymer injection molding, when you have refined it over the years, and I'm not an engineer, so I might be asking this in the, in the wrong way or oversimplifying it, but is it really a combination of the density or the weight of that material combined with the elasticity and finding that right sweet spot of the yeah. two for performance for the club? Well, I mean, ideally, you'd want to make it as light as possible, so you want your density to go down, but yeah. it has a structural component, so it can only go down so much. If you use real super light foams, they have no structural integrity. So it's, then you're not going to get the support out of it that you want. So there's trade-offs between trying to, to get it as light, but then still have the structural components that you need because we've made our face so thin. Like if you took our club now, not filled and hit it one time, you'd dent the face. Like right. the, the filling material supports the face so that it there, there's structural integrity into it. And so that's a piece of it. You hit the nail on the head with the elasticity. Like polymers have an attribute they call it resilience it's kind of like golfers understand the, the idea of cor it's a cor measurement of the material itself like how resilient it is so how much it'll store and rebound energy so right. polymers typically dissipate energy so they're viscoelastic so when they load when they get moved they dissipate or absorb energy and so funny enough is like our gen 1 irons were very much an energy absorber but because we had made the face so thin and because we did so much they still produce for their day, a really high level of performance. But in order for us to get to the next level, we had to seek out and try to get polymers that were more elastic, you know, had higher levels of resilience and work with the structure to store and rebound that energy during impact, allow the face to move. There's all kinds of elements to it, like allowing the face to move, to get the launch and the speed and the spin characteristics that you want to maximize distance. And then also, you're also trying to, to make sure that you maintain high levels of forgiveness no matter where you hit it on the club face. So there's all kinds of stuff that we've done over the years to continue to improve each model in, in independent testing that was done by a magazine. We do our own internal tests and we saw similar results, but it's cool that when it's done by an outside magazine, they had contracted robot testing to test all the 2023 irons that were introduced. And the Gen 6 irons, one of the things I think I'm so proud of is that they won the entire industry for the most forgiving iron on off-center hit performance. So when you hit it in the middle of the face, and then when you moved around the perimeter of the face, hit it toe, heel, kylo, the distance loss was the least relative to the center of any other iron that was on the marketplace. So our technology, there's some misnomers out there that they say, like, oh, it's hot, but it's not consistent. It's completely utterly false. And it's actually the opposite. It's the most consistent iron across the face in the entire industry. Interesting. Well, I will have the chance to put that to the test this week, actually, when this podcast is, is released. I will have already have had my PXG fitting, which I'm having here in Vancouver. Myself as a 14 handicapper where, yes, my iron striking is uh, not consistent. So I'm quite excited to give the irons a go because that's the in my bag here. Those are the things that need to be replaced. 
And the irons I have are at least a dozen years old from another company and yeah, are not doing me any favors. So yes, when I miss hit, it's not good. It costs me strokes. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited sure about, about that. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing with that is we're going to shoot a video when I'm there getting that club fitting with PXG for the irons and probably the hybrids also that we'll put on our Mod Golf YouTube channel at the same time to complement our conversation that we're having here, Brad. So I'm looking forward to that. Other thing I wanted to add too, it seems like it's the kind of PXG all the time here, that the last episode we just released was with one of your staff players, and that was Christina Kim. We had her on the show and oh, had nice. a great conversation with her. I met her uh, here in Vancouver when she was at the LPGA event, the Canadian Open, and she's a wonderful human, and I'm sure you're uh, very lucky to have her on staff because she's pretty awesome. Yeah, she's a lot of fun and been around the game for a long time, playing at a high level for a long time. So that's really impressive when somebody can sustain and stay at that level for such a long period of time. She's definitely an excellent, excellent player. Absolutely. So let's talk about the, your range of clubs a bit. Myself at the 14 Handicapper that I mentioned and uh, Christina Kim of the world. So I'm sure we're not going to get fitted with the exact same iron. So what is the difference as far as your iron line, what Christina would be hitting and what you would predict that I would probably be have in my hands? Yeah. So at the top end, our flagship series is our Gen 6 irons. It's an 0311 model, and we have two different models within that family. There's a P, which stands for Players Category, and the XP, that stands for Extreme Performance. And so the XP is kind of your most game improvement style club. It also delivers a lot of distance performance as well. And so at a 14, that's probably where you'll end up, but they'll mm-hmm. probably introduce the P as well. The P, I like to say, is a in the olden days, 10 plus years ago, yeah, you know, yeah. you'd have to play a big giant game improvement iron to get the level of performance and forgiveness out of it that you get with RP style iron. So I would say nobody could undersell like what that P offers. It's very, very forgiving, even though it carries that player's category and it's a little bit more sleek than, you know, like a traditional game improvement iron from yesteryear, but it packs a ton of forgiveness. It's very easy to hit. So those are kind of like our top two selling models. We have an 0317 category, which really makes up three models that are all geared towards the more elite golfer. So the 0317 line, it actually is a Marine code for Scout Sniper. And so we thought that kind of makes sense. The 0311 is also a Marine Corps job code for riflemen, which was what Bob was when he was in the Marine Corps. So we take a lot of heritage from the military and specifically from the Marine Corps. And those mm-hmm. those names are examples of that. But the 0317, it's definitely geared towards your higher skilled players, more elite caliber type player. We have three models within that family. So we have an ST, which is a milled blade, more traditional muscle back type club. It's solid bodied, but we do things that nobody else does. We forge it, then fully mill it. It's incredible. It's like work of art. They're really, really nice. But a lot of our tour players use either that model or we also have a cavity back version of that that's called the 0317CB, which is just a little bit more forgiving. It's a more traditional cavity back style design. And then within that same family, we have an 0317T, which incorporates some of our hollow body technology. It's the most forgiving of those three, but it's still has compared to our P, it's much more like a blade. It's it's smaller, club head, heel to toe. It's got a thinner top line, thinner sole, less offset. It looks like a tour style club, but it's hollow bodied and features a lot of technology that allows it to play much more forgiving. So players that were really good at one point, but maybe aren't playing as much as they used to, they really like that product because it still looks the part of what they're used to looking at, but it offers a lot higher levels of forgiveness in those 
more solid body traditional blades and even the cavity back players style irons that are available that the t model trumps that in terms of forgiveness gotcha so yeah you alluded to bob's uh, history with the united states marine corps and as being a vietnam vet yeah it was quite interesting that scene that your numbering convention of the clubs is based on this uh, military occupational code so you tell us a little more about that you touched on two of the, yeah. the numbers so yeah i find this quite interesting i'm sure this is part of the culture that's ingrained in at, at pxg yeah, Bob was an 0311, which is a rifleman in the Marine Corps. He credits the Marine Corps as changing his life. Uh, mm. He wasn't a very good student in high school. And he said the only reason he graduated is because he showed him there's papers that, that he'd signed up for the Marine Corps to go to Vietnam. So they passed him. He was in Vietnam and had his experiences there that were difficult at times. But at the end of the day, he learned a lot of things that changed his life. And, and he owes a lot of his success to the lessons that he learned from the Marine Corps. First and foremost, like discipline how to work hard, how to be resilient. A lot of these things that have helped him be successful in business and in life. And so he always likes to pay homage to that history and that background. And even before we started making golf clubs, I remember seeing 0311 on, he'd get motorcycles that were custom painted and they had 0311 on it and stuff like that. So that was kind of like his number and he used it on a lot of different things. So when we came out with our irons, he decided we should name them the 0311 series. And those have stayed as our flagship nomenclature for our flagship series of products to this day. Within the Gen 6, we now use 0311 for the whole category. At times we use different ones, but now the 0311 is kind of just signifies our flagship series. So our Gen 6 0311 includes drivers, ferrywoods, hybrids, and irons. And then we use that 0317 nomenclature for that better, more elite player category of irons. And then we have an 0211 series, which is kind of our entry-level product, a little more cost-effective, has a lot of technology, but it's been designed to be more available, more approachable for more players. We wanted to make PXG available to as many people as possible. Our flagship products are very expensive to make and manufacture, and, and so they cost a bit more. So we wanted to see what we could do to to bring a lot of that technology and make it in a way where we could control our costs a little bit better and make it more cost effective. And in that 0211 series, we accomplished that. Got it. Got it. All right, Brad. So you, you've talked about the process that you have over the years and how you keep refining and developing that and, and kind of pushing the envelope here. It seems to me from what I've seen with the advertising that Bob does and just the kind of the messaging with PXG, with Parsons Extreme Golf, very irreverent, kind of in your face, unapologetic a bit cocky, a lot of swagger, and also fun. So does that, what's put out there to the public, is that the culture that you have within the company? Seems like you guys must have a a lot of fun and very passionate about what you do. So tell me about the culture at PXG. Definitely, we like to have a lot of fun and we're all passionate about golf. I mean, within our R&D team, everybody is very passionate golfer. There's different varying stages of ability. I have guys that are plus three, plus four handicaps, Nicolette, former tour winner. And then we have guys that are 10, 11 handicaps. Everybody loves golf. Everybody enjoys playing it as much as we possibly can. So we share that. And I think that's key when developing products that you understand the customer, you enjoy to be around it. You get so much inputs from just being out and around the game, playing with other people, you know, learning a lot. And so that makes it a lot easier to do our jobs. And I think that is what brings us all to this game and, and what brought us ultimately to this industry is that love and passion for the game. That's something that we all share. In terms of the culture, Bob, he likes that old saying is that we're not here for a long time, we're here for a good time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he tries to, to bring that into the workplace. And the image that the brand has and the persona the brand has very much is, I think, a reflection of just how he naturally is. 
if he walks in the room, like, you know, he came in the room, he has a very distinctive voice and he, he's, <laughs> you know, he, he captures the attention of and stands out in a crowd. In a good way, though, he's a lot of fun. He's extremely funny. I, I always tell him, he misses calling. He probably could have been a stand-up comedian. He just has a great way of delivering jokes. And he's a lot of fun to be around. And, and I think that uh, shows in, in some of our stuff. And that just trickles down to everybody, and I can hear it in your voice. So so just to finish up here, I'm really interested seeing the array and the expansion of products that you offer with PXG. You're obviously into drivers and putters for many years now, bags, hats and accessories, balls, wedges. Every time you add a new product line, how do you go about that same philosophy that you had from day one of let's experiment, let's try to do things that are product and brand forward first rather than worrying about the finance and the marketing side. So tell us about that as you've expanded your product offerings over the years. Yeah, as we built a, a brand and a business, you know, we try to become a complete golf brand and offer products for all the needs that golfers would have. And so we haven't finished everything yet, I don't think, but we've touched most of the important areas, especially when it comes to the equipment and the apparel that you need and where to play golf. So, and yeah, the approach has been very similar to how we started. We tried to always stay true to the core of, we don't want to develop products or bring products to marketplace unless they are substantially better than anything we've done before or anything yeah, else yeah. that's out in the marketplace in our mind. And so that's kind of our core tenant that we hold ourselves to. Building a business, we have to be cognizant of like margins and, and costs and stuff like that. But I'd say one of the things that's very different in our product development approach is to date, we've never like laid out a five-year product plan where we say, okay, we want to launch this product at this point in time and work backwards and say, we want it to be this retail price and do it. And that's kind of like how all the rest of the industry works. I know mm -hmm. very well because I used to manage it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's how they have to work, especially working with their retail partners because they want to know a lot of information. They want to be launched yeah. at a certain period of time. You know, it's just the way the market works. And so for us, because we own our own distribution, we do a lot of things differently, we can kind of march toward the beat of our own drum. And so that allows us to have the flexibility to just constantly in R&D just be working on new stuff. And once we think we're ready, then we try to bring it to market as quickly as we can. It might not make sense to launch something flat in the middle of summer because you kind of miss the window of the front end of the selling season. Yeah, and back yeah. end. But So we might try to massage a little bit, but for the most part, we're trying to bring stuff to market as quickly as we can and get it out there, but only once we've passed the test that we feel like it's significantly better than anything we've done before and it's ready to go to the, to the market. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you talked about your your R&D team. I just want to hear more about that. What are you doing in the future? I know there's only so many things you can tell us. I'm sure a lot of things are trade <laughs> secrets or proprietary, but I see other equipment manufacturers are now dabbling with 3D metal printing for putters and club heads. Is that something you're interested in or, or what are you seeing in the future? It seems like you're always pushing the envelope and innovation is not only very important to you, but you've also given the green light by Bob to make that as part of your DNA to make sure that you're constantly innovating and pushing the envelope. So what can you tell us about the future at at least a high level with where you're going on the innovation side? We have a technology roadmap where we're looking at different categories and, and technology and always have projects working to try to figure out how to make better equipment in our main categories. And then whenever there's a one-off product, we look at that as well. But we're always focused on how do we make drivers, irons, fairways and hybrids and golf balls, putters, wedges. We constantly have technology products going, trying to figure out how to develop the technology that might be integrated into the next generation product. So we're constantly working with teams that are always working on that stuff. In regards to 3D printing, when I first started with Bob, one of the things we actually looked at when I said we were at that non-compete and we were looking at different manufacturing technology, yeah, yeah. we did a real big deep dive into 3D printing technology and how it might be used in the golf industry specifically for R&D or for 
even production capacity mm. type products. But the thing that we found walking away from it is that a lot of the processing technology still left the parts pretty cosmetically desirable, <laughs> like right. or left stuff on the table in order to get it to where it was commercial ready. Right. And so it requires some post-processing and it's very expensive still from a production perspective relative to traditional methods. So we did a different approach. We invested a lot in, in milling and milling technology that provides really, really high level products that are built to much, much higher quality standards and like casting. When you mill it, it has a really cool cosmetic look to it, but most importantly, you control the geometry to much, much tighter tolerances than any other conventional manufacturing method. And so within our R&D area, we have five axis milling machines that allow us to rapidly make prototypes and different types of products. With our supply chain, we've invested heavily in milling products and integrated robotic polishing technology where it makes sense outside of milling. And so we've done a lot of stuff on the manufacturing side too, to try to make our products at a very, very high level of quality and consistency. 10 years in the making here where you are now, I guess, Mike Nicolette's uh, first conversation with Bob was saying this is a really bad idea. I guess Bob has <laughs> definitely proven Mike wrong, hasn't he? Yeah, that's for sure. It's crazy. Like you never would have thought that we could make the impact that we've had in the time frame that we had. I, I do believe that. I thought we could be successful, but I didn't expect the acceleration or the, the pace of which we accomplished a lot of these things. So it's been a, nice. a lot of fun in the process as well. Nice, nice. Well, to finish up here, I want, I want to ask you this, because of course, with product design, you being an engineer, me working in architecture, they say you learn more from what doesn't work or what fails rather than what is successful. You probably remember this from engineering school. I remember it from architecture. The, one of the examples that was gave was, remember the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, like on day one of opening and the wind picked it up yeah. and within like hours it all destroyed and failed. But they learned so much from that failure. So on that, I'm sure everything hasn't been a success in moving forward in, in a straight line because that's not the way innovation works. Can you tell us about one thing in the past over the last 10 years that you tried that you kind of look back and laugh that didn't work at all, but you learned a ton from and the learnings from what didn't work, you managed to apply to something successful afterwards? Yeah, we have lots of examples of trying things that haven't worked out. Some are, are really funny, <laughs> like they're pretty wild and out there. Some of them are evolutionary things or big test matrix where we've tried a bunch of different things and tried to hone in on things that to optimize designs. You know, something that we joke about, something that we brought to market that didn't work out that well was our first generation driver. When we were working with our tour players at that time, a few of them really wanted something that was higher spin performance and more fade bias because of the players that we were working with at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so we kind of bring a driver to marketplace that had those attributes to it. It was a little bit higher spin performance and fade bias. Unfortunately, that didn't fit the market too well. So it was like, yeah. it saddled us with a less than stellar reputation and driver category that's taken us a long time to overcome. But what we've done with the Gen 6 and the success that we've had with that, and then also, you know, some of the stuff that we have coming that is already being used on tour. We've had some great buzz and we're seeing our new product get into the hands of tour players immediately and them have a, a lot of success with. We've probably have more buzz in the driver category than we've ever had as a brand for this upcoming product launch that's not too far off in the distance future. So we're coming to a real big inflection point, I think, as a brand with this new product launch. Everything we've done since Gen 1 has definitely performed at a very good level and we've continued to make products better and better. But I think this one is really going to help set the brand in, in a great new direction and really establish us as a complete brand with excellent product across the whole portfolio, including the drivers, fairways, and hybrids. Nice, nice. Well, I am now quite excited, looking forward to my fitting next week. 
So I'll certainly circle back with you, Brad, to let you know how that went. Nice. I'm sure the, the fitters will get you dialed in. That's, that's the other thing that we do very, very well. Excellent. Good stuff. Well, hey, why don't we leave it at that? I can, yeah, keep going here and going to go even deeper into the dorkiness of club design and product design and all that good stuff. But hey, why don't we leave it at that? Before we do go here, Brad, why don't you let everyone know, I think it's pretty simple where they can find uh, where you have good things going on, but why don't you let everybody know who's listening, where they can learn more about your products online and also through social media where you guys are most active. The website's easy to remember. It's just pxg.com. That's the first foremost where to go. We also have social media pages out there on Instagram and X and Facebook. And again, just searching under PXG, I think you'd find all of our pages. We're not hard to find from that perspective. We have direct retail stores. We have 22 of them in the United States. We're working on opening more internationally. And then we have mobile fitters that are out there, especially throughout Canada, that are that are working with the brand. And we're trying to expand our distribution, especially outside of the United States, partnering with some specialty retailers and stuff to get our products more available, bring them to, to more people so they can enjoy them as much as we do. Awesome. Awesome. Love this. Well, Brad, this is the last episode of our season 14 with the Mod Golf Podcast. And I think we're leaving on a high note here. Just want to thank you again. So, uh, Brad Schwagert, Chief Product Officer at PXG Parsons Extreme Golf. Thanks for opening up the hood and showing us the engine here and how things are built and how things run at PXG. I really, I really enjoyed this conversation today. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. It's been fun. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.